Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lessons from the Top, a podcast that aims to inspire and educate the next generation to the experiences and knowledge of successful people from a wide range of fields. Today, we're thrilled to have with us the Honorable Senator David M. Wells, appointed to the Canadian Senate in 2013. Senator Wells has a wealth of experience in international business, government, and regulatory affairs. Before his appointment, he served as Deputy CEO and Board Member of the Canada Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board. Senator Wells has made significant contributions to the Senate by developing and chairing the Standing Committee on Audit and Oversight and sponsoring significant legislation affecting meaningful change for Canadians. In addition to his political career, Senator Wells is a dedicated community volunteer and a high-altitude alpine mountaineer who has climbed the highest peaks in Africa, South America, and Europe. Thank you for being here with us today. My pleasure. So, first off, how are you doing today? You know what? I'm having a very good day today. Amazing. So, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? What project? What project are you working on, and what occupies your time as of late? Well, you know, I spend about eighty percent of my time doing my Senate work, and in that, it's legislation review, uh, special reports on committees, and representing my province of Newfoundland and Labrador. One of the key things about the Senate is representation of minority voices. Now, that's not to say the voices of, you know, visible minorities, anything like that. It's it's voices that are, uh, that don't have full representation in Canadian society. And Newfoundland is, is uh, f- from my part, as my jurisdiction that I represent. Uh, so anytime I review legislation or, or contribute to reports of the Senate, I look at it from first from a Newfoundland and Labrador point of view. Amazing. Great. So you have sponsored significant legislation in the Senate, including the Offshore Health and Safety Act and the Safe and Regulated Sports Betting Act. What advice would you give to young people who are interested in making a meaningful impact on their communities through legislative efforts? Well, great question. You know, everything starts in in Canada. Everything starts with grassroots efforts. Um, And, you know, the grassroots efforts, specifically in the Offshore Health and Safety Act, uh, was the workers in our offshore petroleum area, uh, they, they were working with outdated regulations. Uh, in my previous life, previous to the Senate, I was deputy CEO and a board member of the Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board. We were in charge of uh, uh, offshore health and safety, the environment, um, uh, industrial benefits and resource management. So in When I was there, I saw that uh, there was lacking updated legislation for offshore health and safety. And there had been a couple of uh, terrible tragedies in the offshore um, with a rig going down, a helicopter going down, uh, you know, a number of things that affected the health and safety of the workers. Um, And so uh, when I was, after I was appointed in 2013, I wanted to make it an initial focus of mine uh, to put in, uh, to update the offshore health and safety regulations, which are national jurisdiction. So I would say anything, anything like that starts at the grassroots. And in this case, the grassroots the wor- was the workers themselves. Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Thank you. Um, so what are your thoughts on the importance of balancing uh, economic development and environmental uh, sustainability? And what advice would you give to young people who want to make a positive impact in both those areas? Great question. So it's really important to consider everything we do in an, on an industrial scale, even on a personal scale, with an environmental lens. So we know climate change is real and that it is happening, but it's my feeling that we can still do 
responsible resource development with the environment in mind. So for instance, if we're drilling for oil in the offshore, uh, offshore Canada, and, and you know, that creates thousands of jobs, it brings in millions or billions in income for the province and for the country and royalties and taxes. Um, so there is a way that industrial uh, production can happen as long as there, as long as there, it's done responsibly with respect to the environment. It, and I mean, in, in the previous question, I mentioned health and safety. So we can do these things with health and safety in mind. There's no reason we can't do them with the environment in mind as well. Uh, and, and we do that. Um, one of the things that was under the legislative control of the Offshore Petroleum Board, uh, which I ran, uh, was the environment. So every time there was an activity that had a possible deleterious effect on the environment, we would be on top of that. We would ask the operator, you know, the, the drilling contractor or the, or the production contractor, uh, how do you plan to do this with respect to the environment? How do you, what's, what's your plan if there's a spill? What's your plan if, if, uh, if there's, you know, if there's a release of, 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 of other deleterious uh, drilling mud or something like that um, into the environment? And so we made sure there was not just a backup plan, but there was a plan before anything happened that would flag a danger. And then if we saw a danger, if there was a danger present, we could mitigate the danger before it happened. You know, it's like driver training. That stops the danger. Uh, a seatbelt and guardrails, that's for after the accident. Uh, but if you have driver training, if you have, um, if you have a, a licensed vehicle, uh, if you have proper signage, if you have the right you know, tires for the right season or, or weather, those are the things that you do to prevent an accident. Of course, there are other things that can be done in the event of an accident, but, but our job and our focus was preventing, preventing any, any accident with respect to health and safety and respect to the environment as well. I think both can be, uh, both can be considered. Yeah. And especially when it comes to construction, taking those necessary precautions in advance is super important. So yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, uh, I was, I wanted to ask you, um, what exactly do you prepare before you make a plan? But is there like a measure you put before anything happen? Uh, what do you mean? In so, basically, when you're constructing anything or with the people, um, you you said that you uh, have a plan built before. Uh, so, is there any safety measure uh, put before or you know after uh, the incident? So always, there's measures done before. And in the, in the case of, of, of offshore safety, of course, we have work, mandatory worker training for everybody, uh, including me as a senior executive. I had to do uh, the, 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 the offshore uh, helicopter, uh, firefighting, gas leak. I had to do all the training for that. Um, uh, of course, we have uh, signage. We, everyone has to, have, has, to, has to wear non-slip footwear. Um, Everyone has to uh, wear the proper PPE of the personal protective equipment. Uh, lighting has to be right. And, it, and, and we, we changed the rules so it was incumbent on everybody. If they saw a potential danger, it was their obligation to flag it. Not like the old days where you might have a supervisor who flags danger. The obligation was on everyone from top to bottom in the organization. If they saw danger to note it, uh, bring it to their, their supervisor or to their colleague who would take it up the line and it would be addressed immediately. 
So, you know, a lot of times, you know, you'll find a loose step or a curled up piece of carpet. You know, all these are dangerous that we see every day. Wires strung across a hallway. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an obligation now. It's not that it's, 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 you don't do it by choice. It's an obligation to flag any items of danger. So there are all the things that you do beforehand. Of course, you, you know, for the things uh, in the event of an accident, something as simple as steel toe boots. Uh, we talked about non-slip boots. That's to prevent the accident. The steel toe is in case you drop a, a wrench and, uh, and, you know, and it, it protects you in the event of an accident. So, you know, we really broke down in the offshore and, and, and in all industrial um, environments, uh, we really broke down the, the, the elements of danger. What can you do to prevent? And in the event of, what can you do to protect? So, and, and then like, it all comes down to planning. Okay. So we're going to switch a little subject over here, but um, I wanted to ask you, as a former president of Wells Solution Group, Inc., and president and CEO of SPC, Inc., what advice do you have for young people who aspire to become successful in the business world? You know what? In the business world is a tough world. Uh, I would say learn your craft well. Learn it well and don't be afraid to take risks. Um, the safest thing to do is to do nothing. Uh, but if you want to excel, if you want to succeed, if you want to, if you want to show what you can do, you've got to take that first step in, in, in the risk category. If you don't take a risk, then there's, then the chances of success are based on luck or based on chance or based on the goodness of someone else, uh, for, for, for younger people, students or otherwise, uh, learn the craft, take a risk. What do you think is your biggest risk that you take uh, into your career? In my career, uh, you know, public speaking was a big risk for me early on. It wasn't something I was used to. I remember the first opportunity I had in public speaking, besides in university and in school among my, among my peers, um, I was speaking for the company I was working with. I was in my early 20s. Uh, I was really nervous, really nervous. I didn't know what to say, even though I had the remarks prepared. I, uh, you know, I was just nervous, but I, but I took the risk and I did it. I was, it was probably the worst presentation I've ever given, but the more you practice, the more you take that risk, the more you accept the possibility of making a mistake, which is what a risk is, uh, the better you get. And now I speak in front of parliaments around the world. I speak in front of thousands of people. Uh, I'm on, I'm on the television news, I'm on the internet. Uh, most of the time I don't use notes. Sometimes I have a prepared speech when I have to get certain issues, uh, on the, on the record. Uh, but most of the time, um, I don't use notes. It's like this. I just speak, speak from, from, from my knowledge or from, from the heart. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's worked well for me, but it's taken a long time to get there. Some people have a natural ability to do that. I didn't. Uh, but when I think about it now, I, I think, yeah, this is easy. I'm not not at all nervous, comfortable, but it's because I've done it so many times. So, uh, so that, that's what I would say. Take, take a risk. Even if that's any opportunity for public speaking, go for it because people will see you. If you're speaking about a topic that, you know, people will see you as an expert in that field. And that expert, if, if they see you as an expert, they will call on you again and you will develop that uh, every time you're called upon. So if you would say that taking those calculated risks is very important and to fail, 
sometimes is important because it it it's, it helps shape you and it helps uh, improve so that uh, eventually you can actually become better at that thing. Like for you with public speaking, you um you said that now you, you do presentations uh, all around the world, but um you had to fail in the beginning. You had to make those little mistakes. So you would say that um it's almost necessary to fail. It's almost necessary. Sorry, it is it is necessary to be open to fail. You may not fail. You may be a natural at this. It may be, you know, we all know people that were in our class that were great at public speaking. You know, they just had that different level of confidence and, and they were built for it. We all know people who were the opposite of that, who might have had might have had tremendous knowledge in an area, but they were nervous about about exposing themselves like that in a in a in a public forum. Um, and so definitely take the risk, be open to failure, but learn from the failure. And you, and, 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 you know, as I said, the first time I did that was all sweating. My face was red, stammering. I didn't get my words out like I'm getting them out now. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if that was a failure, I'll, I'll take it because that was the first step. Nice. So, um, let's speak a little bit about, uh, the volunteering work that you've done. So, you know, you've done a lot of volunteering in your life notably with the Minor Hockey Association and the Big Brothers of Canada Mentoring Program. Um, how has volunteering impacted your life, and what advice do you have for young people who want to make a positive difference in their communities by volunteering? You know, it's a great question. So one of the things that volunteering does, it it, it allows you to become, to be part of the community to help build, build your community. Uh, of course, it also is great for making new contacts, because if you're going to volunteer with an organization that might have 10 or 20 or 100 people, you're all of a sudden going to be um, going to be introduced to an environment where you will meet other people uh, and and can benefit and can provide benefits to those other people. So I would say the volunteering aspect, you know, it's, it's a good thing to do. It makes you feel good. It makes you part of the community. Uh, certainly, if you want to go on to something in public life, you can reach back and say, yes, you know, I did, I work, I did work for Big Brothers or to or for the Girl Guides Association or, or the food bank or, you know, community cleanup. It can be anything. But if you get involved, you meet other people, and that builds up the foundation of what you are supplying to your community. Eventually, you want to be, you know, if it's a politician, you want to, you want to do that for your community or for the community of people that you represent. Um, so... You know, when I think about the things that I did long ago, volunteering for minor hockey, being on the school council, uh, Big Brothers, which is a great program, and I mentored a, a 13-year-old boy who didn't have a dad, uh, and uh, you know, like not just it wasn't just personally enriching, but I know it was helpful to 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 that to that child who didn't have a father figure or responsible father figure in his life. Um, you know, it's uh, and and volunteering is so easy. You don't have to. You don't even have to sell yourself. You're not asking for a salary. You're not asking for special hours. You're just helping. And uh, and that's a really important thing for, for anyone in their community. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like um, sometimes people, they get into a job where they're like, they enter a domain. It, it's, it, it can be overwhelming a little bit. So I feel like um, volunteering, you know, like you said, it can help you shape uh, a little bit of what you want to do in that domain and how exactly you can supply and provide value to that domain so yeah completely yeah it's exactly right you know even now even though i don't volunteer for minor hockey or i'm not involved in the big brothers i still speak about it um i do i'll call it volunteering i mean it is it's not so much part of my job but i choose to do it as a senator and as 
the support that I provide to our police force, uh, our police forces across uh, across the country and in my province and in my city. Uh, the support that I provide for firefighters who do an incredible job under very difficult circumstances. So I don't see this as volunteering, but it is it is things I decide to do on my own volition that's helpful to the community and helpful to groups within the community uh, that are that you know don't always have the easiest ride. And do you think everybody should um, help their community like you did? You know what? I think it's an obligation to give back to your community. It really is. The, our communities do so much for us, so much. Uh, you know, in in most cases, we feel safe in our communities. It's where our friends live. It's where we. It's where we eat and play and 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 do our sports and and you know the clubs that we're part of. You know, all those things are important. It's really important to be to to give back to that that community of people. That thing that we you know that we for me I feel so strongly about about giving back to the community. It makes it a better place. Hundred percent. And I wanted to ask you, what is the most rewarding thing you've done in your life? Wow. So that's a tough question because you know what every day is 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 so full of 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 doing things whether it's a small thing like helping a community center raise money or or being uh, at an event where people say oh the senator is going so we'll go you know because that's interesting so even the small things like that to the to the larger things like you know having a hand in canada's laws uh you know all of those things are great honors they're great honors to do uh they're not always easy to do but you know sometimes the, the hardest things to do uh, are the most rewarding. So, you know, being part of the lawmaking process, uh, representing my province on the national stage, representing my country on the international stage, uh, those are things I think, you know, I don't want to say I'm proud of them, but I certainly get a good deal of satisfaction doing them. And when I look back on my career and on my life and on my work life, uh, I think I will think about those things as things that I did, you know, that, that were really uh, good contributions for my province and for my country. And do you think it's scary sometimes to know that you're doing something for a whole country? You know what? It's, um, no, I think I'm used to it. You know, initially when I first started out in this field, certainly as a legislator, you know, I didn't know process. Um, I didn't really know uh, in depth how laws were made, how you need to build coalitions or partnerships, even with people that you sometimes don't agree. You still need their support. For the, for the things that are important to you. Um, so uh, is it scary? No, I recognize it's a big thing. I recognize making laws for a, a country like Canada is a big thing. I recognize uh, speaking on public policy issues in international fora. I recognize that's a big thing. But you know what? It's, it's, it's not just part of my job. It's part of, it's part of my honor to do that. So uh, is it a big thing? Um, yeah, it's a big thing, but I'm not afraid of it at all. I, I embrace it. I feel comfortable with it. And uh, and as people get older and more experienced, uh, they become more comfortable with the things they do. Think about the job that you're doing right now on the on this podcast. Uh, your first time doing it, you know, you were probably a little bit nervous. Is it going to go well? How's the guest going to be? Is the Are the technical aspects going to be okay? The lighting and the audio? Uh, but then, you know, you do it a few times, you become comfortable with it, and then you become good at it. And then it becomes less of a daunting task. It's a good lesson. And um, how important would you say it is to, as like a senator or someone that makes laws or someone that's 
uh, in a field responsible for the populace. How important would you say it is to put yourself in the place of uh, the average citizen and to really realize how impactful uh, your decision will be? You know what? Really good point. So what I do in preparation for either promoting a law or legislation or, or detracting uh, from, you know, from it going forward, uh, I meet with as many people as I can from diverse backgrounds, even people that aren't in favor of my view. Uh, so if I'm supportive of a law, uh, and look, let's look at single event sports betting, which you mentioned earlier, George. So when when I was the sponsor of that in the Senate, uh, I was thinking, okay, well, I think it's a good idea to have regulations and taxations and take it from the black market into the daylight uh, and put it in the hands of you know responsible agencies to manage, which we have now. Uh, I wanted to know, well, who would be against this? Why are why would why would someone be against this? So I talked to mental health advocates. I talked to First Nations groups that had that were working in the black market over in the overseas market, the gray market. It was called or it is called. Um, you know, the groups that weren't paying taxes, that didn't have any regulation, that didn't have any supports in there for problem gambling. Uh, and so, so I I talked to not just people that were for it, lots of those around. But I talked to people who were against it. I talked to academics who looked at it from that lens, not for or against, but just from a purely academic lens. I talked to people in other jurisdictions outside of Canada where single event sports betting was legal. What were the ramifications? Was there, you know, uh, you know, what are the difficulties that came and what were the benefits that came? Uh, so it's, you know, it's that full 360 view that I took um, because you know, I, I, I want to get it right as well. I don't want to, I don't want to promote a law that might have deleterious effects that I don't see coming. I mean, I'm only one person who's, who may not be knowledgeable about it, uh, but I may be supportive of certain aspects of it. But if we can put in safeguards or make amendments to make it, to make it, uh, to make it the best law it can be, uh, then I'm all for that. And that's, that's, that's the kind of thing. That's my preparatory work. I talk to as many people as I can who are knowledgeable about this. So amazing. And we're going to switch completely uh, out of the subject. Um, you have climbed some of the world's highest peaks. And I wanted to know, what is, did you learn exactly from these experiences in your life? You know what? Embarking on uh, an adventure such as that um, is, 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 it is life-changing. It seems sometimes tried to say, well, it's a life-changing experience. This one was. When you when you voluntarily put yourself in an environment where people die regularly, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, that, that's a, I talked about risk earlier. That's a risk that I decided to take. Safest thing is to stay at home, but then you don't get that, not just the rush of adrenaline, but that long-term feeling of accomplishment. So when I embark on a climb, I spend a few months, you know, getting back in shape because it's physically taxing. Uh, I do a lot of planning. I do months and months of planning. And there are some things you can plan for and some things you can't. You can plan on your gear. You can plan on your route. You can plan on your climbing partners and your guides if you have guides. Uh, there are a lot of things you can plan on, but a lot of things you really have to leave to chance. And then you try to mitigate the risks of those chances. For instance, you're up on a mountain and the weather comes in. You don't know if that weather is going to be two days and you can sleep in your rest in your tent. Uh, or you don't know if it's going to be a week. You don't know if it's going to be howling winds or 
temperatures of minus 50. So you plan for that as much as you can. Of course, being on the mountain is difficult. And I'll tell you, every single time, I, I love the planning. When I'm on the mountain and I'm hungry and I'm cold, and I'm and I'm and my oxygen level is low because you know at at some of these uh, some of these peaks, you know the oxygen level in the air is uh, is less than forty percent of what it is at sea level. And I live at sea level; my body lives at sea level, so that's what I'm used to. So when I'm at forty percent of oxygen and I'm gasping, you know I've seen other people, you know they uh, they get terribly confused, they make poor decisions, they make mistakes. Uh, you know, and they're not, um, they're not physically able and mentally able to continue, but they think they are. So they're, you know, so it's, uh, it, it can be, it can be challenging. So for me, I try to mitigate as much of those risks as I can. When I'm on the mountain, I hate it. I'm uncomfortable, I'm cold, I'm tired, I have no appetite, headaches, you know, and, and, you know, you're not in communication with, with, with your, with your support. Um, but of course, if you, you know, if you summit, as I as I've been successful a number of times in doing, uh, that satisfaction lasts forever, it lasts forever. So it's a uh, you know a couple of weeks of, of hardship, and 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 then a lifetime of of you know that uh, satisfaction that you attempted something, you planned for it, you overcame it, and you got back safely. So it uh, it's it's a it's you know it's it's a it's a big part of it's a big part of of who I am now. Um, a lot of people, you know, if, if they've read about, uh, any of my expeditions, you know, they'll say, when is your next climb? When's your next climb? I don't know when it is, but you know, I keep active and I, I, you know, I, I still, I still climb to the degree I can. It takes a lot of time and I'm in a job that also takes a lot of time and I have family, I have kids and, you know, other things that I like to do, but you know, climbing is a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, risky, rewarding activity. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. You really have to be mentally built for it. Um, but if, but if, you know, but if you do have that, uh, and you're willing to start slowly, when I say start slowly, start on some lower hills, not some of these high peaks that I've done, um, then it becomes, you know, like for me, it's a, a very much rewarding aspect of, uh, of my life. When I look back, I'll be, I'll be happy about, uh, I'll be happy about that. And which peak was the more challenging for you and the most energy consuming? So the, I've done, so that's a great question. So there's a, a peak in, in Russia, in Southern Russia called Mount Elbrus, and it's the highest peak in Europe. Uh, that's not the highest peak that I've climbed. Actually, that's the third highest peak that I've climbed, but that was by far the most difficult. I was alone. Uh, my, some of the teammates uh, went forward. And some, some just didn't, uh, they just turned back to base to high camp. Um, but it was cold. The wind was howling. The snow was really deep. So I was going up to thigh, sometimes waist level in trying to get through this. I didn't have snowshoes on. I didn't have skis. I just had my climbing boots, my mountain, my mountaineering boots. Um, so for much of that, I was alone. It was probably minus 40 to minus 50 degrees, howling wind. Um, and I got near the, the summit, which was a long plateau before a higher peak, which I had to climb. And so I was standing there, I had my gear on my back, not a, not a heavy pack, but a, a light pack for like for, for, for the day. And I could take probably three or four steps and then I would have to wait to catch my breath. 
And then I would take three or four more steps and I would wait 30 seconds, 40 seconds to get my breath back. Then I would take, and so that was, that was so challenging. And for me, I could see the, I could see the summit. It was well within reach, uh, at sea level. You could walk it in a minute, uh, or, or anyone could, you know, walk it in a minute, you know, if, you know, at a reasonable altitude. Um, but that was the, that was the most difficult climb. And that was, uh, you know, maybe 6,500 meters, something like that. Um, and then of course I had to return, uh, return alone as well. So there are dangers in that. And would you say that that level of preparation, um, has helped you outside of your work? It has because it taught me how to tackle big obstacles. Malcolm is, of course, a big obstacle in preparation uh, with 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 the other things in life. Like, for instance, trying to get a piece of legislation through the Senate or through the uh, through through Parliament. Um, you know, in many ways, my activities, my activity categories are the same. So I do a lot of preparation. I learn. I learn the legislation like I learn a Malcolm or a root. Um, I get allies to help me. Uh, like I do on the mountain. I have, you know, my climbing partners that I rely on. Um, I make sure I'm technically proficient in the legislation, just like I'm technically proficient on the mountain. So all of those things, actually, it's a really good parallel. All of those things are important because it's all about preparation and ability and knowledge. When we give a speech in the center, so I'm, you know, on that second reading or third reading, and people are, you know, they're, they're not sure about the legislation. So I give a 10 or 15 or 20 minute speech about the legislation and why I think it's the, the right way forward. Then we have a, a part of the part of that part of that debate. Uh, anyone, any one of my colleagues in the Senate can ask me questions. Well, what about this part? Or what about the effect that it has on French Canada? Or what about the offshore? Uh, you know, what about, you know, health and safety and forestry? Why doesn't this go that way? So, you're asked a lot of questions and you have to be ready for those answers. And if you don't know those answers, your colleagues will know pretty quickly that you're not, um, that you're not prepared. And I'm not willing to walk in a room and not be prepared, whether it's on a mountain or in the Senate chamber. So, you know, it's, uh, the parallels are there for sure. Be prepared, uh, because you never know what's around the corner, whether it's a tough question or, 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 or a challenge on a mountain that you, you know, that you didn't see coming. Yeah, completely agree. So throughout your career, you have worked with many different people. And is there anyone in particular who has had a particularly significant impact on your work? And what qualities did they possess that made you, them such an inspiring colleague or partner? You know, I mean, I've had in, 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 my, in my career, in my broad career, I've had many different jobs. Uh, and, you know, there are people that I, at the time, I didn't realize their value. Uh, it's only after when I look back and I go, yeah, you know, that person that I worked with, you know, they had a great work ethic or they were really prepared or they gave me advice that I still remember to this day. I remember one person this was back in the 1980s and his advice to me was always deliver more than is expected. And you know what? I mean, for me to remember that 40 years later, uh, that was good advice. Always deliver more than, than that is expected. So, um, you know, never leave a task undone. But but I can't I can't point to one person. I mean, the support of my family, uh, the support of my work colleagues, 
and my other friends. Like, you know, it's all, it all goes into who you are and who you become. Um, it would be unfair to choose one person because you know what? It's, you know, you're a product of everyone you've interacted with. Some close and some, you know, some not so close, but with, with valuable, uh, valuable input as well. But you're a product of that. Um, and, you know, you know the value that you have in your friends and how they support you uh, or your family. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know it's, it's a bigger picture than one person for sure. So, you know, I would say, I would have to say, start with family. They're the ones that, they're the ones that keep you grounded. They're the ones to tell you if you're making a mistake, your friends and your colleagues, they're not always going to tell you if you're making a mistake because they like you for different reasons. Your family will always let you know. They'll keep you grounded and they'll give you the best support always. And like you said, actually, I feel like everybody around you is building you up and you're learning from everybody. And that's really important as a you know human being to learn from everybody and to just grow. So that's, you ju- you said it. So, um, yeah, well. Thank you for being here today with us, uh, Mr. Uh, Wells. George and I had a really great time talking to you. So, um, yeah, we discussed many subjects that are really important for the youth. And again, we really appreciate it that you were here today. You know what? It was my pleasure. It was a great interview. Uh, probably the longest interview I've done, which is great because, it's, you know, it's a, it's a conversation. It's not just me being grilled. Uh, and I've learned a lot from you guys today, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you to you and uh, thank you everyone for watching. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everyone.